Lindsay McKenna has been around horses since she was 12. She's also a prolific romance novelist, having written over 175 books that have sold a whopping 23 million copies worldwide. As most good writers, she has also lived a life full of adventure, and because she incorporates her horse experience into her novels, I thought it would be great fun to have her on the show. The conversation you'll hear today was recorded on Monday. We had our first talk on the previous Saturday. Now that first interview had some technical issues and literally sounded fried. Now the only reason you're hearing about it is because Lindsay has this great story of how she was struck by lightning when she was nine years old. And this is how it sounded through the recorder. I'll, I'll tell you what happened, and most people are probably going to think that because I'm a fiction writer, I'm making this up, and that's why I, I don't talk about it too often, uh, but I got struck twice by lightning, and after this, I started writing, we reconnected several times, but each time we talked about the lightning bolt, the same thing happened. It was really weird. I have done so many uh, radio uh, interviews over the years. I'm not kidding you. Probably about a fourth of them, all of a sudden, they just go, Fit! and and the line is broken. And then they have to call back, and we have to reestablish the, uh, the interview over the phone. It's like a lightning bolt. I'm a catalyst. I, I catalyze situations, people. You know, my books are catalytic. Uh, they trigger people and hopefully start them under healing. Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. On today's show, we'll talk to author Lindsay McKenna, who has had an amazing life with horses. When Lindsay was 12, she was determined to get a horse, but not just any horse. Lindsay had her eye on a wild horse. We lived in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and I was reading the want ads one day, and it said, horses for sale cheap. And so I could I called up the guy and said, well, how cheap are your horses? He says, we have some for $45. So I biked down there. And when I biked down there, there was the seven-foot-tall, cubicle-type, uh, two-by-six. Uh, they, they weren't stalls, but they, they each had a horse in them. And there was like, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 of those, you know, 10 on each side. And I was looking in there, and then down beyond that, I saw that there was a dog food factory and I'm starting oh. to put this together going, Oh my gosh. And so I went to the first corral and this beautiful sorrel, uh, two year old stallion with white socks and white blaze was in there. And he, he was just trying to, you know, get out. He was throwing himself against the, uh, you know, the walls and stuff like that. And these were all Mustangs. Uh, they, they were, caught uh, by a bunch of cowboys down in southern Oregon, which there's a lot of Mustangs in, in that area. Oh, yeah. And they had captured them and brought them up here and, and were going to sell them for dog food. And so I, got, I went back home. I biked back home, and I called my dad, or I called the, the guy again, I think, and, and I said, there's, there's a, a horse, you know, I told him where I was at, and he says, oh, that one. He says, do you know? He says, he's already jumped a seven-foot wall to get out. He says, I want to get rid of this animal. He says, he's causing us nothing but trouble. He says, I'll give give him to you for $45. 
And I, you know, again, here's a 12-year-old mind. And I said, well, would you take my bike in in uh, trade for him? <laughs> Holy. You're a wheeler and dealer there. Well, yeah, I mean, it was all I had, you know. It's the only thing I owned in the world. We were a very, very, very poor family. And uh, he says, well, no, I can't do that. And I said, well, let me go talk to my parents, and I'll, I'll be back with you. So I called my dad. And he said, yeah, he, he said, we can afford $45. Now, at the time where we were living in Klamath, we had a horse barn, a corral, and then we had eight acres of grass and, and a creek on one side of it. And it was beautiful. It was perfect for a horse. And they knew I was horse crazy, okay? And uh -huh. so I, you know, I called my mom, and, and she was okay with it. And so uh, my dad called the guy and uh, he went down after work and paid the guy $45. In the meantime, uh, the guy that owned the dog food uh, factory had one of the Wranglers uh, take out this two-year-old stallion. And uh, he he was riding a mare <laughs> who was not in heat, I should add. And he just tied the rope uh, to the, the mare's tail, and the two-year-old stud just followed him right along the streets of Klamath Falls till they reached our place. And once wow. he got there, um, the, the wrangler told me, he said, do you have any place to tie him up? And, and my dad said, well, there's a big, big post, you know, it's about 10 feet tall out in the center of that that eight acres. And he said, well, he said, get a rope. He said, maybe 20 feet long. He said, tie him up there. Cause he said, if you let him run loose, he's going to plow right through that fence and be gone. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing was with this horse who I, who I called pretty boy because he was beautiful. Um, he had a huge chunk out of the side of his mouth on, on his right side. And the Wrangler had told me that when they were chasing this herd down to capture them, that they the horse herd went crashing into a wheat field and then out the other side, but there was barbed wire on both sides of it, and that the pretty boy had had part of his muzzle torn, which exposed his incisor, okay, uh, uh -huh. off by, by the barbed wire. And he also... Um, I think, as I recall it, he had a barbed wire cut on his lower left pastern, which had healed up. And he, he wasn't, um, you know, he was fine. He, you know, did not suffer from that. But um, they were out, you know, we put him out there and gave him water. And, and I just sat there. I, I didn't know, you know, he was a Mustang and I could tell he was upset but I could feel him too, and I could feel that he was he's curious about me because I sat down, you know, and, and I found um, one one of the the things that I do when when I'm going to gently break a horse and get them used to me is, is especially with foals, <laughs> is to sit down because that way you're not tolerant, you're not threatening to to that right. horse, okay? And that's part of it. The other part is is that they get very curious when you sit down. And so Pretty Boy would come over and, you know, it, it took about five days. And I would come in in the morning and feed him. And I'd sit out there for a little while. But I had to go to school. When I'd come home from school, I would spend at least an hour out there with him. And I would just sit. Uh, I wouldn't sit real close to him because I didn't know what he was going to do. And I didn't want yeah. And the regular kept saying, you know, don't don't get too close to him because he's stud. He'll bite and he'll he's liable to uh, lash out at you or kick you. 
So, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about horses at that time. So I took the... You're doing this all on your own intuition about what you want to... The relationship you want with Pretty Boy. That's right. Yeah. And so at the end of five days, you know, every day I would go out after school and I would I would sit, you know, I mean, as a 20-foot line. So I would sit about 18 feet away from that. And I'd have two feet between him and me. And I figured if he was going to charge me or bite me or hurt, try and hurt me, um, you know, I could two feet, I could get away from him. Right. You know? Because the Wrangler put the fear of God in me, believe me, you know. And he just thought it was crazy that a 12-year-old girl was going to do anything with, with a wild Mustang stallion, okay? I mean, that's right. it. And, and remembering that Pretty Boy had jumped straight up and, and got out of that seven-foot-tall box that he was in. And he had no place to run. He just used the pistons of his hind legs and went straight up and out. Wow. And one of the Wranglers saw him do it. And he couldn't believe it. And But that's how bad he wanted his freedom. And so at the fifth day, uh, he came over and he ate some carrots out of my hand. And so after that, he got to understand that when I came out, there was goodies. <laughs> and I always <laughs> would, you know, cut up an apple or I'd have some carrots. And... You know, probably by about the 12th, 10th or 12th day, he let me touch his nose, and, and that was such a, a nice thing. And he just stood there with his head hanging toward me, because I was always sitting down. I, I never stood up. Um, and, and he let me pet him. And so, you know, it probably about, it was about three months into taming him that I put a, a McClellan Army saddle, a 1918 uh, McClellan uh, saddle that had been very well used during during the World War One, I, I guess, and uh, with a saddle and a blanket, and I and I got it from the neighbor next door who had a barn and who had had horses one time, but they didn't now, and all uh -huh. they had, they didn't, the only thing they had was a Bozel Hackamore, okay, uh -huh. and again. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, <laughs> uh, versus the the uh, you know the dumb twelve year old who was totally ignorant, uh, I would never put a bozo on a horse that I was going to uh, you know tame. I, I'd like to have a snapple bit in their mouth for starters, just to get them used to it. Even mm -hmm. though all the horses that I ever tamed, uh, I always used a hackamore on them. Uh, for the first couple of years, and some of them went on to always use a hackamore, and others uh, maybe a tom thumb bit at the most. I, I never never had any horses that I would ever use any severe bits on because uh -huh. you don't need to. <laughs> but that's you know that's my experience. But anyway, right. about uh, three months, uh, I was you know putting everything on, pretty boy, taking it off. I was cinching it up so, you know, a little at a time so he didn't get scared and, and he didn't bolt or anything like that. He never did. It was like that horse knew where I was at. And there was such wow. a trust factor between us at that time. Um, and so I think that probably for the first time in his life, he had a gentle human being around him. Uh -huh. uh, because wranglers were not, they're, you know, these guys use a two-by-four on a horse, right. fortunately. And so, and I didn't know that at that time either. But uh, when I first put my foot into the saddle, uh, I just kind of slowly put the weight into it, and then I would remove it. I mean, it was a process, and it was probably about three and a half months before I actually got on him uh, to ride. And, you know, he was always on a bozel. He never had, uh, you know, a bit in his mouth. 
And I'm sure that he could have tore through that anytime he wanted to, but right. he never did. Okay. And I mean, we rode with other kids that had other horses, so we had a great time. And he didn't buck the first ride. That's amazing. I've never had a horse buck on me with the way that I, I tamed them with love. The second book in your new Wind River Valley series was just released. Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about the new book? The Wind River Valley series uh, is with Kensington Publishing, and it is romantic suspense because I, I like a little action in, in my uh, romance writing. The reason why I write romances is, is that I believe that love is the most powerful human emotion on this earth. It's the most positive and it's the most healing. So that's why I love writing uh, about romances. Um, and in the Wind River Valley series, it's it's going to be all stories about men and women vets coming out of the military and trying to find their way back into civilian society with their PTSD, which we know now doesn't does not go well. And right. uh, so Wind River Rancher, which is book two, which has just come out. Uh, is about a Marine Corps uh, captain who led a Marine Corps company over in Afghanistan for many years, was really good at what he did, but the PTSD piled up on him, and they eventually gave him a medical discharge. And when you stop and think about a man like that, who has had a brilliant career, who's a really good people manager, who loved what he was doing, to have that all taken away from him, I mean, that literally is like pulling a rug out from under your feet. Oh, wow. and. And also having PTSD, um, in, in the book, the story, he loses his wife uh, in a divorce, and he also loses his friends. He can't go to his parents because he wakes up with either flashbacks or nightmares, and he's screaming, and he wakes them up. So by the time the book opens, he's two years into this, and he's, you know, just like a lot of vets, they're wanderers, and they're just trying to find some job so that they can eat. Um, and so uh, this is a story of where the heroine, uh, uh, Shay, is, owns a ranch in Wyoming where he's at, and she's looking for a wrangler. She, too, was in a Marine Corps and has PTSD, but she doesn't have it as bad as he does. But she's made her ranch uh, a place where vets who have uh, PTSD, a place to heal up. And one, one of the things about people with PTSD, whether they got it in the service or whether they got it, you know, being a firefighter or paramedic or an EMT, or they came out of 18 years in a dysfunctional family where they didn't know they were going to live or die, they all have PTSD and they can't handle a lot of stress. Um, you, if you start trying to get a job where you have to hurry, 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 or, you know, there's a lot of demands on you right. to perform. They can't do it. And so they get fired from a lot of jobs just simply because of that alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Wind River Ranchers is about hitting bottom and finding hope uh, with, with a group of Wrangler vets on this ranch, the Bar C. And, um, of course, there's a love interest. And it's, it's really nice because... Um, Shay's PTSD, she's got an abusive father who had a stroke at age 45 and is a drunkard. And he's continually, uh, you know, creating a lot of loss of self-esteem in her because he always tells her she's no good. She couldn't run a ranch. She's a woman. Who does she think she is? And But with 
um, Reese there, um, the Marine Corps, ex-Marine Corps captain, he's, because he is a good people manager, he always was, he didn't lose that skill. He, he can help her in different ways with this reclarant, uh drunkard of a, um, you know, a father. Right. And, uh, and yet she's able to know when he's starting to go through something, she senses it, she sees it. And, and she's able to kind of give him a, a calm space to, to wander around in until some of it goes away. And eventually he learns to start talking with her because, you know, she's ex-military and there is definitely a sisterhood brotherhood within the military. And because you, you speak the same language you've had similar um, experiences and that bonds you, it bonds you for life. It's not something, even if you leave the military, it's there forever. So uh, the book is, is about uh, both people growing, both people trying to get purchase in their lives to make something good in their lives, to try and be normal, but they know they'll never be normal. And is this a, you, is this a working cattle ranch situation? Uh, Yes, it is. And but see, up in Wyoming, uh, have you been up to Wyoming, John? Just to to drive through to Montana. Ah, okay. we didn't get to experience too much of Wyoming. That's too bad because you should go to the western side of Wyoming, where all the cattle ranches are at, and up there they do not have a ninety-day growing season. Did you know I that? I did not. No, they don't. And and also that if you leave uh, cattle over the winter in Wyoming, they die. So, and they die because of the cold, okay? Right. And they get four or five, six feet of snow at a time in blizzards, all right? Uh, and so what, what the ranchers do up there is, is they, give, they deal with grass leases. They will lease out, uh, you know, so many acres of their ranch, uh, which has this long, luxurious, you know, half foot to foot long grass it's lush and it's green and so the other ranchers truck their cows up there to eat during that summer that two month summer window to fat them up to take them you know um to uh, slaughter right. so up in in that part of wyoming which is where i've got the book set uh it is definitely not cattle ranching per se but rather grass leases and and they deal with cattle and and the you know the the wranglers who are at the ranches have horses or they have ATVs or whatever mine have horses because I'm a little partial to horses versus a mechanical right. contraption. Um, the they're still wranglers. I mean they're still moving cattle around and they gotta vaccinate them and you know and they gotta take care of them. So they are cattle ranches but it's it's only during the grass lease season unless they can put a small herd of cattle into uh, large barns where they can protect them from this killing um uh, snow and uh really you know we're, we're talking 20 30 40 below right they, they just and don't have that, a, a protection against that that's freezing right. cold Right, so that's why I kind of want to make sure you understand that. Yeah, there's cattle there, but there's there's a lot of other things about it, and and I put those things in the book too because I, I like to write about an area that I've been in and I've done a lot of research on, uh, and my husband and I go up there every year uh, because we're you know uh, amateur wildlife photographers to the Grand Tetons and to Yellowstone Park, so I'm I'm very familiar with that.
Is Wind River Valley a real place? There is a hundred mile long valley called Star Valley down below Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I just changed that name and put Wind River on it. <laughs> you know, because you know, bad things happen in this valley and I, I don't want the the poor people of Star Valley to be damned. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh, you got drug runners in there. Oh no. <laughs> oh wow. So you know, I I changed the name to Wind River Valley, but and are there going to be future books? I've got some great books coming down the line that are going to have uh, more horse horse oriented things in them. Uh, in book four, which I think it's called Wrangler's Challenge, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it is about the horse the the vet who who was a horse trainer before he went in uh, to the army, and uh, the the heroine. Uh, is going to help him because she's part Comanche and she's worked with Mustangs over on the the eastern side of, of Montana. And so those two are going to get together. And, there's, of course, there'll be a love interest there. But I've got more of a focus uh, on on horses per se and in that one, although horses are in all of them. And when I write about them, I love putting the personalities on them. And uh, Kensington has been lovely they put the horses they put the horse that the hero actually rides in the book okay for instance in wind river uh rancher you'll see a gray horse in the background on the cover and that horse's name is ghost because he's he's a gray horse okay but that is the horse that the hero rides you know uh during different different scenes in the book so oh, wow. Kensington has been really sensitive about things like that. And also there's a, there's a golden retriever on the same, on, on Wind River Rancher. And there's a golden retriever in the book that is owned by Shay, who is the heroine. And his name is Max. But And Max, when, when she hires Reese, Max just adores him. And you know how dogs are. You know, the right. dog likes you, they'll hang around with you. They don't, you know, I mean, you watch your animals. If a strange person comes into your house, you watch your dog. Your dog's going to tell you immediately whether that person is, is worth having in the house. Or- yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of that. So uh, Max is on the cover, but so is Ghost, who is the hero's horse. And Reese is on the, on the cover of that. And um, I, you know, the way I write is is intense emotionalism and very sympathetic characters. And I, 36 years in this business, I, I have some of the most wonderful readers in the world, and uh, they like that kind of writing. Thank goodness. So I'm I'm very appreciative on many levels. You are a Navy veteran, aren't you, Lindsay? Yes, in 1964, uh, I was 18 years old when I went in. And uh, my family lineage on both sides of my family, uh, my father's side was uh, Marine and Navy, and uh, my mother's side was Army. And as a matter of fact, my mother's uh, brother, who was my uncle, who I loved dearly, uh, was one of the paratroopers that, uh, you know, jumped out of a plane on D-Day in France. And he lived to tell about it because so many of those guys got killed, um, you know, after they jumped. So... uh, but anyway, to make a long story really short, um, I had uh, decided to uh, that I wanted to fly. I love planes, and uh, so at 17, I started my own business. It was a worm business, uh, night crawlers, and I learned how to uh, put 
put night crawlers into big, you know, big uh, wash aluminum wash uh, pans and stuff like that. And uh-huh. and I grew hundreds of dozens of night crawlers. And then I sold them. This was in Medford, Oregon. And I sold them to the sporting goods stores. And then I went and I created a sign and put it out front that said, you know, worms for sale, twenty five cents for a dozen. And uh, by the end of the first year, I had $600, and so I took my bike, and I biked up to the Medford uh, Airport, which is about a half a half a mile away, and put my money down on the counter and said, I want to learn how to fly. And so um, it was interesting. My, my instructor was an ex-Air Force uh, jet jockey. I mean, this, this was in 1962, I think, uh, or 63. And... Uh, so I soloed in 12 hours, which is, is uh, the, the normal average for people to, you know, to solo. And then uh-huh. uh, I spent, the, you know, I had 39 hours before I went into uh, the service. I had wanted to go into the Air Force because I flew and I knew they had a flying club. And I wanted to continue my flying. You know, I wanted to continue my hours. And so I went to the Air Force recruiter in Medford, Oregon, took their test. I ended up with a 95%, and they offered on the spot um, uh, that I could uh, go to air control school for them. And I said, that's great. So I came home, told my mother and father, and my father just kind of looked at me. He said, well, he says, all all of our family either goes into the Marine Corps or the Navy. And my heart (laughs) just dropped because it was like, oh, I knew where this was going to go. Yes. And, and and I couldn't say no to my dad. So I said, okay, I'll go to the Navy recruiter. Well, my tail was between my legs. I went down there and I just barely passed the test because I really didn't want to pass the test. I got mm-hmm. 75% on it. So I ended up going into the Navy. And um, then uh, about the third week in boot camp, they give you three days worth of, of uh, testing and it's eight hours a day. And it's very grueling. I came out of there feeling like somebody wiped my brain clean after eight hours. Wow. And uh, But on the 10th week of a 12-week uh, boot camp, uh, I got called up to the captain's office, and my CO went with me. <coughs> and I didn't know why he was asking for me, because there's no, no boot recruit that's going to go see the captain of the base, okay? It right, just does right. not happen. And I was shaking in my boots because I thought, oh, my God, what did I do? I must have done something so horribly wrong that they're going to officially kick me out and the captain's going to tell me that I'm I'm gone. You know, I mean, because there was we started out with 85 women in our boot camp. And by the time we graduated 12 weeks, we had 42 women that had, you know, gone on to graduate. And this was in a time when women weren't really fondly looked upon in the service oh no kidding i mean there was very few of us today we've got 15 percent of the military is comprised of women but never mind that this was 1964 so uh i went up there and my i was tied in knots i thought i was gonna throw up i i was just so upset over this finally got called in and i stood at attention in front of his desk and you know he told me that my grades uh, in in mechanics, in the mechanical area, were the highest that any wave, any woman since 1943, when they started women in the Navy, was the highest mechanical scores they'd ever seen. And he said, if you, you know, and, and he cursed a lot, okay? He, wasn't, <laughs> he was not a happy camper. And he slammed, the, slammed my, my entire file down on his desk, and I jumped. 
And he said, if you were a man, I would, and, and you can fill in the blanks here. He says, I'd put your ass into jet engines. Oh. <laughs> and back in 1964, they didn't allow women into any, any of those areas. So he said, you have two choices. He says, you can either be an air traffic controlman or you can be a meteorologist. Which is it? You know, I mean, how do you decide your fate in two seconds, right? Probably right. a second. And I decided I wanted to be a meteorologist because they did not have a flight uh, club there in the Navy. So I couldn't continue my flying anyway. And mm -hmm. so there was no reason for me to become an air traffic controller, you know. And so I took the meteorology because right. I love weather. And so that's how that happened. And, uh, you know, I spent three years in the Navy and... Um, I, I had really good scores, so by the time I was done with my graduation, uh, they sent me out to USNAS Moffett Field out in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's now closed down, but it was a P-3 sub-squadron, uh, so there's three squadrons out there, uh, base, and I was in the operations building, and I was a meteorologist, and I gave uh, weather to pilots. I even gave... Uh, weather to some of the first seven astronauts they would fly in in their t-38 airplane their jets and you know they'd always have to have weather to fly back and right. i got to meet alan shepherd and um the guy i'm sorry i don't remember his name but the guy that died later in another capsule um oh grissom yeah gus grissom yeah he mm -hmm. was a hoot i mean shepherd was like this robot you know i mean he yeah. he just you know, the face never changed. There was no expression. It, he was just cut and dried, all business. But Gus was hilarious. He was a clown. I mean, I was busted out laughing across the, the desk, you know, and because the other forecaster was giving him the weather, and I had to be there because I was learning how to, to give the weather to the pilots. And uh, But he, he cracked me up. I cried when, when he died because I got to meet them personally, you know, just, just because. He said one of the main characters in Wind River Rancher was suffering from PTSD. Was it your military service that made you sensitive to PTSD? Shortly after I, I got to Moffett Field, um, I wanted to go into San Francisco because I was born in San Diego. Okay, I'm a Southern Californian girl. And I always would have wanted to go to San Francisco. So here was my chance, right? Right. I got, got into my uniform, and I was so proud of my uniform. Um, and, you know, part of it was it, it was being patriotic and you were serving your country. And my whole family on both sides had done that. And so that uniform was special to me for many, many, many reasons. And so I hopped the bus outside the gate and into San Francisco we went. And I wanted to go to the USO uh, to, to meet people, you know, uh, other military people and just, you know, relax and have a good time and find out about the city through through the USO. Well, I got off the bus and people had, we have to kind of reset everybody's mind and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to hear this podcast that weren't even born in 1960. <laughs> so back in the 60s, starting about 1964, uh, we had the hippie movement, we had the anti-Vietnam War uh, demonstrators starting up, we had civil rights blowing up on us and we had feminism uh, starting. It was a turbulent time. It was very turbulent. And I was in from 64 to 67, so I saw a lot. But, you know, I was a green boot, just out of boot camp, and I didn't know that 
that because of the the environment in San Francisco, because it was like Grand Central Station for hippies. I mean, the hippies all converged there, okay? Right. right. I I was not a political person. I'm not a political person to this day. So I didn't I didn't stop to think that, you know, when you go into San Francisco, there's hippies, and they are anti-war, okay? They're peace and love and, and everything like that, which I think is great, okay? Yeah. But I don't do drugs, never did drugs, and I don't believe you have to do drugs, but never mind that. So... I did not equate or even stop to think about that I was in a Navy uniform, my dress uniform, and there was hippies there in San Francisco. And it just never crossed my mind. So when I got off the bus, I tried to follow the bus driver's directions. I got lost. I turned and I went down this one street. There was about 12 to 15 hippies, half men, half women, halfway down this block. And they're very long blocks in San Francisco. They're not short ones. They saw me come around the corner and they started, they charged me. I mean, they were running toward me, screaming and yelling and raising their fists. And, and I froze. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand, you know. I mean, I was a green 18-year-old, a you know, right. rural person, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> when they got to me, they surrounded me and they started pushing me around. They pushed me to my knees. They called me baby killer and they called me all kinds of things that I'm not going to, to say on your podcast. And they spit on me. And I finally got away from them. And I was dazed and stunned and shocked. And I couldn't understand why did they attack me. You know, what? I didn't hurt them. I didn't do anything. I finally made it to the USO. I got to the bath, the head or the bathroom. And I looked at myself and my whole uniform had spit on it. It had spit in my hair. I washed my hair. Oh, you my know, and it, it was awful. And then I got mad. <laughs> <laughs> then I really got pissed. Uh, about the whole thing and I at that point I just looked at myself in the mirror uh, and and I, I made a silent promise to myself that I was not going to have our military people uh, damned like that and blamed for the Vietnam War it was McNamara's war it wasn't the you know the Marines or the army or anybody else who was on the ground losing their lives 55,000 men yeah. Uh, they were blaming you personally for the war. Oh, they did. Absolutely. It was the last time I ever wore my uniform into San Francisco, I can tell you that. <laughs> and oh, I was civilian clothes. And uh, after I got back, I talked to uh, to my CO in the meteorology division, um, Lieutenant Commander Didigian, and, and he just rolled his eyes. He says, they could have killed you. And I said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> way but he said don't ever ever say that you are you know in the military to anybody in san francisco he says you just don't speak of it and that's that was the tenor of the times and so i made that promise that i was going to somehow someday make civilian people understand that military people had a heart they had a family they had compassion they weren't baby killers they didn't want to kill if they didn't have to you're credited with starting a whole new genre of writing, military adventure romance. How did you break into the writing field? When I got finally broke into writing in 1980, um, I went with the Berkeley Publishing. They had a uh, Second Chance at Love series there, which was their romance uh, line. Mm -hmm. And uh, they bought four of my books. And I had... And, and they were really light and comedic and stuff like that. And I'm not that kind of person, you know. I, I, I'm a very deadly, serious, conservative type of person. 
<laughs> I don't crack jokes. I, I have great puns sometimes, but I mean, that's about as far as it goes. So uh, I had written a book on uh, a military hero who was a colonel in the Marine Corps. And when I handed it to my editor at Second Chance at Love, she says, well, we can't publish this. She says, it's too serious and it's too real and no readers want to read that. <laughs> okay, fine. So I sent it to Silhouette, which was the romance uh, line for Simon & Schuster Publishing at that time. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, is that uh, Alicia Condon, who was the senior editor there who bought the book, Captive of Fate was the name of it. Um, it's really funny, you know, the, the publishing world is a very small world. And I'm now at Kensington Publishing, and she is the editorial, uh, she's she's the head of editorial. Oh, wow. So, I mean, and and also <laughs> the the uh, the editor that I had there at Silhouette was Tara Gavin, and she is now at Kensington Publishing. So it's like, you know, what goes around comes around, and it's like 36 years later, hey, here the three of us are again. It's <laughs> different publisher, but doing the same thing. And uh, so anyway, Alicia bought it, and when um, it came out in 1983, and it became what what is termed a bellwether book. And a bellwether book simply means that it is a book that changes the entire way of, of a genre and the way it's looked at. And it sold really, really, really well. And they were surprised, but they went with it because they could see that, that not all the readers wanted comic, light, fluffy stuff. Okay. Right. They wanted some serious books with, with meat on their bones, okay, mm -hmm. that they could get invested, you know, emotionally with and, and have sympathy for, for the, um, the characters. And in this case, you know, it was about a Marine Corps colonel. So you know, who was on a, a life and death mission to Costa Rica because a volcano had blown there. And believe me, there are volcanoes in Costa Rica like you can't believe. Um, I was sitting at Tabacum Resort about a mile away from uh, RNL, which is, was at that time the third most active volcano in the world. <laughs> so that sucker was always spewing out, you know, lava. And, right. Um, Fortunately, we were on the side that it wasn't wasn't going toward. It, it was marching off in the opposite direction of the resort. So that's why I wrote about Costa Rica, because I write about what I know, uh, because I can give readers more in-depth, little tiny bits of information that you'll never get if you've never been to Costa Rica or you've never been around a volcano and you've never smelled the volcano, you know, and the sulfuric right. acid and stuff like that. So anyway, that was my first military romance book. And I've been writing them ever since. Um, and that's, it's, I'm going to write what I know. And I would like to think that after 175 books and getting into it in 1980, that I have helped change some people's way that they look at our military people. Because I can tell you it's a far cry from Vietnam when, when we were glared at, we were, you know, cursed, uh, we were uh, treated like pariah. And nowadays, everybody can't, can't, I mean, when they find out you're in the military, they're going, thank you for your service. I mean, it's such a turnaround. So I'd like to think that my 175 books, of which, you know, 23 million in sales and in 33 foreign languages, has done something to have civilians see that the military are not monsters. 
How can people find out more about your work? If readers want to kind of check check it out, I have an exclusive chapter on Wind River Wrangler on my website. It's www.lindsaymckenna.com. And, you know, readers are pretty savvy. If you throw, a, a you know, an excerpt at them, they're going to know immediately whether or not they like the writer's writing style, uh, whether it appeals to them or not, for whatever the reasons. So excerpts are a really great shortcut uh, to uh, finding out and understanding a writer's uh, way of, of creating a story. So that is over on my website with Wind River Wrangler, and I invite anybody that would like to to uh, to go read it and and see if my writing style fits fits what you need. And if it doesn't, that's fine. And if it does, that's great. You know, let me know you're a reader now. <laughs> <laughs> that that's. Yes, because you like hearing from your readers. Oh, I love hearing from my readers. Uh, 36 years in the business, my readers have kept me in the business. And that's not a joke. That That's just the bald-faced truth. I write for them. Um, and, you know, when I started in 1980, uh, readers used to send letters. You know, we don't know what a letter is anymore, right? It's just emails. That's- that's the thing with the uh, used to have to lick the other thing to put on the outside oh, of the yeah, thing. Oh, you the stamp, right? At, right. And then you had to go find a box that you'd stick it in, and then you'd hope that it got to the place it was going. There with... you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're oldies but good, John. Right. <laughs> I remember those things. But, uh, I mean, I I have I, I probably have 10,000 letters before emails came in. from around the world i answered every last one of them and if the readers happen to buy wind river rancher uh, i would invite them to look at the dedication uh because it is to one of my readers ray noble uh was her name she was with me from the beginning and every time she would read one of my books she would send me a letter and if i had six books coming out i knew six letters were coming but she was such a sweet person she loved them so much you know if you if you're reading romance, there's always a happily ever after. There's always you know, and in this world nowadays, John, there is not much good news anywhere. Okay, right. and and horrible things are happening all over the place to so many people. Uh, so a lot of women, and 25% of my readers, by the way, are males. They're men. Okay, they read uh, romances because there is a happily ever after. There's there's something good that happens in this world even if it's in a book and I like giving people uppers and uh, Ray would always write to me and tell me how much she loved it and you know she was just so sincere and these were handwritten these were not typed there would be four or five six pages double double sided okay oh and, but she would tell me about what's going on in her family and she would trade recipes with me and I loved that because I wanted to know who my readers were and that has served me even better in the internet age um, because I don't have to do analytics to find out who's reading my books. I do know who is reading my books. Exactly. So, uh, you know, lasting this long in this business, I, I'm truly a dinosaur, but I love telling stories and I love helping people have a better day uh, because, I mean, if you turn on the news, my God, um, pick up a book instead. You know, you'll have a happier experience. Yes, and I'm sure that you also give people a glimpse into what it's like to be around horses. And I also want to introduce uh, people in cities to rural life. I think that that's very important. 
and uh, and also that nature is very healing. Working around animals is healing. And, you know, your ranchers and your farmers are some of the most hardworking people in, in anywhere, you know, in the United States. And, you know, a lot of people nowadays, honest to God, do not know what hard work is. I do. That's right. You do. I mean, I can't, I've lost count how many box stalls I've cleaned out <laughs> you know, and used the shovel. And all of that is in all of my stories. You know, you're going to get real ranch life when you read my stories. There's nothing made up. You know, it's all true because I've done it all. <laughs> you know, anything I know gets thrown into the books. While your books not only offer an accurate picture of ranch life, there is a very lovely underlying sentiment to them as well. Love is, is the greatest healing human emotion we have, and, and I don't shortchange that. And I, and I think that if we could be more loving and more compassionate toward everybody, regardless of skin color, religion, or gender, or whatever, we would have peace in this world, and I, I truly long for that. I mean, I was in the military. I understand uh, that sometimes we have to have wars, especially if you have bullies that are pushing you around. The only thing they know is the same kind of uh, violence back at them, unfortunately. But, you know, I just hope that my books continue to uh, to let people see and get insight into military people's minds and hearts and their emotions, their dreams, uh, the challenges they go through are, are so much more than the normal civilian person that's out there. So if my books can do that, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> Lindsay, this could go on for hours. You have some wonderful stories and a life full of adventures. Thank you so much for being on the Wool Podcast about horses, and I look forward to talking to you again. And thank you so much for the opportunity, and I really, really enjoyed it. I love horse people. They are just the best in the world. Thanks to Lindsay McKenna for sharing her time. I hope you'll check out Lindsay's new book, Wind River Rancher. I'll have a link at wopodcast.com. If you know someone you'd like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Or if you have thoughts on this episode or the show in general, it's easy to contact me. Send your comments or suggestions to john at wopodcast.com. Renee and I are going to be in the Austin, Texas area in late March. If you have any suggestions on places to visit, ranches to see, we're looking to enjoy the great music and fantastic food of Austin, but we would love to hear about your favorite places. For more about our show and the other things we do, visit WoePodcast.com. Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship has over 100 audio episodes you can find not only on iTunes, but Stitcher, Google+, and everywhere else podcasts are listed. And the best part, they're all absolutely free. You can also find a link to our YouTube channel where we have over a hundred videos sharing our life and learning about horses. Thanks again for listening to the show and sharing this podcast with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.